stay up to date on the groundbreaking tests and solutions powering the healthcare system, you're listening to Diagnostic Dialogues from Quest Diagnostics. Here's your host, Dr. Pat Alicia. Welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues, innovation and insight presented by Quest Diagnostics, where we speak with top researchers, doctors, and thought leaders about some of the hottest topics in healthcare, from the latest cutting-edge research to what's coming next in the world of diagnostic medicine. This is your inside track on the engines that power the healthcare ecosystem. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Pat Alaja, and today I'm joined by two world-class infectious disease experts, Dr. Hima Kapoor and Dr. Robert Jones. Dr. Kapoor is a senior medical director, infectious disease immunology, and the leader of the Quest Global Diagnostic Network. And Dr. Jones is the medical director and infectious diseases specialist and the associate medical director at Quest Diagnostics Nichols Institute. They join me now to talk about disease surveillance and how it can be used for detecting new outbreaks of diseases and evaluating control and preventive measures. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kapoor and Dr. Jones. About 100 years ago, 1918 to be exact, we had a serious influenza pandemic that resulted in the deaths of approximately 50 million people and impacted the lives of millions more across the globe. At the time, our scientific understanding of the causes of the pandemic and the epidemiology was in its infancy. Fast forward 100 years, and now we have tools that have defined the human genome down to segments and subsegments of RNA, Artificial intelligence has characterized the foldings of proteins, you know, over 200 million proteins. Computer simulations have allowed us to model the epidemiologic spread of diseases. These tools have led us to a much more sophisticated understanding of the molecular basis of diseases such as Ebola, HIV, AIDS, MERS, smallpox, monkeypox, SARS, and of course, COVID. So my question is, how is it that with all our knowledge, expertise, and experience, we didn't seem to grasp the magnitude or the intensity of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. What is it that we have learned from this pandemic and how is this different from maybe Ebola or monkeypox or Zika? How will these lessons be applied to the global diagnostic surveillance work you are doing, Dr. Kapoor, and the domestic diagnostic work that you are doing, Dr. Jones? So Dr. Jones, I'm gonna start with you. What has COVID taught us about disease identification and surveillance? That's a great question, Pat, and thank you. Let me start with a quote from The Plague by Albert Camus. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people equally by surprise. One of the particular aspects of COVID-19 is that this is a respiratory spread virus. In addition, this was a virus that did not yield to change of seasons, much like we see with influenza. This has been a, a true pandemic in every sense of the word and that it is spread across the world. It has been all four seasons. It's affected a community that basically has not had any immunity to any virus like this in the past. So these are the things that actually create concern, obviously, but are why we are at odds with it at times. We cannot predict. We can do mathematical modeling, and that may be a help, but until we actually see how people respond in the community with a particular infection and how it's spread, that information actually impacts the mathematical modeling as well. This is something that we have been trying to predict for a long period of time, and the Infectious Disease Society has predicted that something like this is going to be coming for the last 20 years, but we're always caught by surprise. And I don't think that 
We've learned everything we can learn, but we certainly have learned a lot. So, Dr. Kapoor, what happened? We have learned a lot, but there are certain things which we can try to predict. But when they happen, we have to deal with them. COVID-19 was a similar story. We've been expecting a pandemic to come because the scientific community had been tracking influenza after the pandemic, which was in 1918, and was expecting what if the influenza mutates, we could have landed into a similar situation. But this time it was a different virus. If we compare the 1918 pandemic, it had the effect on a different age group population. And also there was about a quarter percent of the world population which was affected at that time. In COVID-19 pandemic, the numbers look huge, but we've got better tools today from science and technology. We could know the structure of the virus much quicker. The scientific and the pharmaceutical companies and the vaccine manufacturers came ahead to manufacture prevention strategies much quicker. The numbers look big, but if we compare the 1918 numbers to the numbers of COVID-19 pandemic, we've come a long way utilizing the newer tools. The mortality which we saw in 1918 pandemic was about 50 million people throughout the world. And in COVID-19, even though, as Dr. Jones mentioned, it's a virus which was throughout all four seasons when it stayed alive, we still saw only six and a half million people die from it. And the population has increased since then for the last hundred years. So I think that's the key difference. And then there are differences between the viruses. The influenza, we saw the seasonality, we saw younger people dying from influenza, whereas here it was more onto the different age groups and pathological phenomenon. In pandemic, which we saw in 1918, people died of secondary infections like pneumonia, bacterial infections. Whereas in this one, it was more of an immunological pathway, which also was very different and novel in this virus which we saw. So it's an evolution which we as infectious disease experts see from time to time. Newer pathogens get generated by those mutations. It's more like a ongoing war between humans and pathogens. We see it all the time with bacteria and more so with RNA viruses. So some of the examples you mentioned, like HIV is an RNA virus. And we still don't have a vaccine because it mutates. Every time we were very close to making a vaccine, the virus mutates. And we are seeing the same thing with COVID-19. So tell me a little bit about this RNA virus. Why is this RNA virus so infectious and so lethal? Was it that the virus is so strong or that the host, the individual, was weak? Yes and yes. So Herb DuPont gave a keynote speech at the IDSA in 2019, and one of the things he said was that, and I'm paraphrasing, one-third of all emerging infectious diseases are RNA viruses. And the reason being that RNA viruses uh, can be difficult is that they have no internal quality control system. They mutate relatively rapid and much more rapid than DNA viruses. So as they replicate, if they change a codon, they change amino acid or something, it mutates. And it doesn't take long for that to happen. And in the case of COVID, this is one of the things that we were kind of struggling with, was that we were hoping to achieve herd immunity in a population where that was never going to happen based upon the rate of mutation, 
and vaccination rates, as well as very late to the game treatments. So the RNA viruses are particularly peculiar, and this is not the last we're going to see of them. I agree with whatever Dr. Jones just mentioned, but one more thing you asked about the host. Everybody was naive to this virus, so therefore nobody had seen the virus earlier. We expect that there could be some cross-reactivity to other coronaviruses which people have seen from time to time, and that's why probably about 75% of people suffer from very mild disease with even SARS-CoV-2. And only early in the pandemic, we saw the mortality as close as 5 to 10%, which is now diminishing with all the preventive measures we have taken, vaccination, and also having the therapeutics available have brought down the mortality rate to nearly 1 to 2% with this viral infection, which is something we all need to pat ourselves on dealing with this new pandemic and bringing the mortality from 5 to 10% to just 1 to 2% within just two years. I think it's because of the new science and technology and tools we have today. So, Bob, you were talking about Dr. DuPont saying that a third of all these new infectious diseases are RNA viruses. This is an RNA virus. A third of the new ones are going to be RNA viruses. RNA viruses rapidly mutate. Okay, so tell me something good here. Um, <laughs> you know, creates a little bit of fear and angst inside, I think, most of sure. us. So how do we stay in front of this? Or does the virus attenuate over time and become less lethal? What should we be looking at over the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years with RNA viruses? I think much the same. The silver lining will be that our technologies, while some of them are still very advanced and very good, are still not at the bedside level. They're in research laboratories, they're in high-powered laboratories that are doing work on genomics and so on. But a lot of these tests are not at the bedside level to make a rapid diagnosis early on in the process of a pandemic or a disease process. So if we can have those capacities of uh, rapid diagnosis, rapid identification, and very clear etiology, that would be helpful because then we can predict maybe what to expect. I mean, this is the third time since 2013 a coronavirus has jumped from animals to people. So it shouldn't be a surprise that this can happen yet again. And this is why it's important for us to continually provide surveillance information or to follow information that's going on in the world, not only just in the United States, but all over the world. Anytime that you have close proximity of multiple species under a single roof or in a small contained space, you have the capacity for genetic mutation and crossover information and creating new and wonderfully difficult pathogens. So these are the things that we have to do to monitor carefully or what we call surveillance. So Dr. Kapoor, you run our global diagnostic networks at Quest Diagnostics. How do you stay in front of this and what kind of communication and transparency what kind of discussions are you having with your colleagues on the global side? So as Dr. Jones mentioned, surveillance is the key to keep our ear to the ground with all these newer pathogens. So at Quest Diagnostics, we've done two things. One is we've launched our emerging infectious disease strategy. We now have a director of public health who's actually keeping her ears to the ground through various resources and channels and networking activities and bringing anything new which is coming as escalated threat to attention of our scientific community. 
So that's domestically what we are doing from within Quest Diagnostics as well as from U.S. perspective. But globally, we have what we call as a global diagnostic network, which is actually an alliance of the nine commercial laboratories throughout the world. We had created Global Infectious Disease Prevention Network, we call it as a GIPN, G-I-P-N is the acronym, right before COVID. Actually, this was in our conception when we built the Global Diagnostic Network that besides doing scientific exchange, we were focusing on infectious diseases as such. And under that network, we are coming together the scientific team and the epidemiologists from these locations. We meet every other month, sharing information. Our intent is to share materials in future. And in the past for COVID-19, we did get the clinical specimens from one of our members from South Korea to help us with clinical validations. This network, it brings all of us together, makes our world a little smaller in understanding what's going on in their territories. We also have come together during COVID time, sharing how we all were dealing with COVID-19, not only just with the virus or infection or testing, but also, you know, the surge capacity. The business continuity was also one of the big topic of discussion during COVID with the global members. To your earlier comment, what we have learned in COVID-19 pandemic, it's not only about the science, technology, or tools, it's beyond effect on children, schooling, employees, employers, the continuity of the life gets affected. So there are lots of lessons learned. And also in your relationships with public health entities like the FDA. So back to the issue of data collection, there's a tension between being transparent so that everybody knows what's going on and then privacy. Nobody wants to die of a bad disease and frequently if they have something bad, they don't want to talk about it. But it's important from the epidemiological standpoint. How do you reconcile that tension between the need for transparency and certainly the need for privacy? I think the classic example is HIV in terms of People wanting to maintain their privacy, information that is not meant to be public, and at the same time, keeping track of what's going on and being able to adjust and to help in a situation that is medically dire. So one of the ways that we do this internally, or one of the ways that's done in general, is to de-identify data and to the point that you cannot follow a patient's test result back to that individual. By de-identifying, we have data. It might tell us what geographic area it came from, but that's probably about as close as it gets. And in addition, we don't have a lot of additional medical information around laboratory testing when we start drawing information. We may have information on some comorbid illnesses. We may have an age. But again, many times we're very limited in terms of what we can abstract and utilize for epidemiologic data or data collection to make decisions. So again, this is a critically important area in medicine, and many people are familiar with the term HIPAA, but patients' private information and certainly their medical health history or their health history information is beyond reproach. This is not something that we share with anybody or should be shared, but we try and take the data with what we have so that we can utilize that to either anticipate or to model how things might progress or how we can create an interception point to ameliorate or to slow down the disease process. So you're comfortable domestically that 
the patient data, the privacy is protected as you're identifying the epidemiological spread of the disease. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. There are laws to protect patients and protect health information. As we see these rapidly mutating RNA viruses traveling around the globe at probably faster and faster speeds, maybe becoming more attenuated, maybe not having the same impact as we saw with the pandemic, but with the potential there. Those are weak signals that we're closely paying attention to where we didn't pay attention to them before. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. And I would say the other part of this is the communication aspect, is that we're getting information through government agencies of other countries, and it's not always complete, maybe not completely vetted. And the other part is we, unfortunately, and the lay public particularly, relies on social media. So absolute facts and details are not always clear. So it's critical to weigh the information appropriately, but at the same time, be very vigilant. How do you separate, as infectious disease specialists, how do you separate what's real from what's not? The weak signals from the strong signals. You're being bombarded with these viruses. There are thousands of viruses that we're following all the time. How do you figure out what's real and what's not? So there are certain criteria definitely in the surveillance programs which people factor into, and those are type of the pathogen itself, like we described RNA viruses because they can and depending on the source of infection, are they respiratory, are they gastrointestinal, are they from other like tick-borne diseases, mosquito-borne diseases? What is the spread of the new pathogen? Is it an absolutely novel pathogen? If the hosts have not seen that particular pathogen, definitely it's the disease can escalate much quickly, which we saw with COVID-19. We do see smaller reports come almost every day. There are probably thousands of certain media reports or publications which we see. But I think there are certain factors you have to put into context. You see start sudden increase in cases domestically within the United States. If suppose you start seeing outbreaks or sudden appearance of cases with the same pathogen at multi-state like we saw with paracovirus more recently. And we do know that those viruses cause outbreaks every other year. And some of the viruses have seasonality. Will that escalate into the bigger outbreaks? Or if you see the eruption of the newer cases into multiple countries at the same time, we saw with the polio virus, and are those genetically similar? Because you may see genetically different organisms from different parts of the country that could be their own, you know, like local eruption of the cases. But if you see one genetic type, that should give you a red alert. It's one source leading to various appearance of those cases. So there are many factors like this, which you need to put into your electronically mathematical modeling or your manually doing some surveys or so keeping your ear to the ground to differentiate between the smaller versus the bigger problems. I agree completely with everything that Dr. Kapoor said. I think the other aspect of this is sometimes these things are driven in within populations. And again, whether it has to do with their immune status or whether this has to do with, in the case of monkeypox, just close contact. So I don't think any of us expected monkeypox to be anywhere or will be anywhere near the size of COVID. But at the same time, 
it's a significant illness and it's going through our population. Fortunately, it doesn't have a high mortality, but at the same time, we're seeing it in certain populations within the United States and other countries at large. So is it a DNA virus? Is it an RNA virus? Is the host immunocompetent, immunocompromised? Is it a novel illness that the population is completely immune to or has never seen before and therefore completely susceptible? So it's a long equation. As Dr. Kapoor said, many factors apply in and how it's spread, I think, is critical. Respiratory illnesses tend to be ones that seem to be more severe in terms of how it gets through a community just because of how we socialize. All these things that have been discussed play a role in how we look at what may be important or what may be less important or what may not be important at all. So to summarize, we can characterize the virus genomically, you know, kind of its, its fingerprints and also its, the speed of mutation and also identify the hosts that are being infected by this and characterize them accordingly and then kind of map those things against each other and then extrapolate, I guess, to larger populations if we need to. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, we can actually go back and tell you what animals that came from as well. Was it a camel? Was it a bat? Was it cats? Was it a civet? I mean, yes, that amount of information is available and we can learn from it, but it doesn't always tell us all the answers we need to know. So I think we learned a lot from COVID in a very short period of time and developed infrastructure that probably was weak in certain areas. Now we have monkeypox that pops up. So what have we learned? What kind of infrastructure do we need or identified where the gaps are? And how does that inform the work that we're doing with monkeypox? I think the first thing goes with the diagnosis. So the laboratories had to speed up. And I think this is where our public health entities did a fabulous job. They engaged the private laboratories to bring the assay as quickly as possible to serve the public health need today. We also utilized the knowledge about the molecular tools to bring up the diagnosis. As Dr. Jones mentioned, it's a different virus. It's a DNA virus. And I think something good about the monkeypox is that we already have vaccines which are available, which are in use for select populations. So that's another plus, which is of not as big a threat as we saw with COVID-19, because at least we have the preventive measures at hand. Some of the learnings we had with the COVID-19 is the response, how quickly we need to respond to such public health entities and provide the help. Another naturally favorable entity is that it is spread by contact. It's not a respiratory virus. It's not an RNA virus. So I would say, all in all, the infectious disease community is pretty confident that we can deal with this outbreak. So the other kind of cool thing about all of this is that those of us that are old enough to have received smallpox vaccines actually have probably some conferred, at least partial immunity. Those antibodies hang around for a long time, or at least the memory cells. I'm going to take it more from a little bit of a clinical perspective. So, you know, as an infectious disease doctor, I would make a broad brushstroke and say most of us are kind of a little geeky in terms of being fascinated by new diseases. So I would guarantee you that 90% or more of infectious disease doctors, once monkeypox hit the news, were already reading up on it well in advance of ever seeing a case. And probably most haven't seen a case. But I think critical of this is too is understanding the disease itself, understanding how to recognize it, and that sort of public health infrastructure in terms of disseminating that information, providing 
any tools, anything at all that can help in the diagnosis and management of patients is critical. And I won't say we were necessarily sort of burned by COVID, but certainly it heightened our awareness of what we need to do and how quickly we need to do things. So and what I'm hearing is we have a lot more communication, a lot more transparency, and I'd say a lot more collaboration globally and domestically. We have artificial intelligence, we have bioinformatics. What are your thoughts about what this looks like over the next five or 10 years? That's a great question, Pat. When I was getting my training and in my early years of life, I've gone through the drills of preparedness for both bioterrorism as well as pandemic preparedness because I was the virology manager in a public health lab. And to actually live through this pandemic, a lot of those learnings did come through my mind. And But now I'm in a better spot. And I think I feel the same for my fellow colleagues who have been in the similar situation. Those learnings are going to go a long way. And I think the key learnings are, as you already said, collaborations, but the gaps we identified early on in the pandemic were like having a good communication plan. So I think if we can apply those both domestically as well as globally is the key. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it's not about the science, technology or prevention. It's many other factors which play a role in a pandemic. It's the business continuity. It's your daily life. It's kind of like an emergency. So I think we all lived through it for two years and we are still not out of it, but I think it gives us a lot of key learnings to work upon. And I'm excited that CDC has launched a center for disease forecast, which is going to be like a weather forecast. I think that's going to be very promising in future to keep us ahead of the knowledge. And also, you know, it will be more like when you check your weather, when you're getting out of the house, do I need to take an umbrella? What kind of clothes I have to wear? I think it's going to give us that knowledge of what do I need to be aware of? What kind of sanitizers do I need? What kind of precautions do we need? Because with this COVID, we did learn other infectious diseases were much lower. We didn't see the flu outbreak because people were maintaining social distancing, people were utilizing antiseptics more, maybe hand hygiene more. We didn't see gastrointestinal outbreaks, which we usually see with norovirus and other gastrointestinal pathogens. But I think all these lessons will bring the whole infectious disease community, as well as other people with a lot of practical knowledge, so that if we all can put our brains together, we can be in a better spot. Yeah. And so I think you hit on a very important point, these strong public-private partnerships where a lot of collaboration, a lot of knowledge exchange, a lot of trust has developed over Mm -hmm. the last several years between, I'd say, the commercial labs, the academic medical centers, and the government work, which made a huge difference. So, Bob, same question. As we get smarter and use bigger words and more technologies or whatever, are we getting any better at this? The short answer is yes. The long answer, obviously, is a lot more complicated. You may remember there was a a quote attributed to a particular Surgeon General, though I think it's been debunked, that all infectious diseases have been eradicated, and that was in the mid-60s. Obviously, that was nowhere near the truth. Bennett Lorber, my chief of infectious diseases at Temple University, used to have this slide that he made up, and it was all the diseases that have been eradicated versus all the diseases that occur currently And the amount of lives that have been saved by vaccines and the fact that we've eradicated diseases like polio and diseases like river blindness and trachonculiasis and all these diseases far outweighs 
what we're seeing in terms of current illnesses. So the key here is that we live in a very fortunate time. Technology is amazing. If you really think about how quickly we identified coronavirus, how quickly we mapped it, how quickly we created a vaccine for it, and how quickly that vaccine was made accessible to the public, that's never been done before in the history of man, that quickly with that magnitude of effort. So I feel positive. Anyone thinking about going into infectious diseases, it's a fascinating field. There's always something new and exciting. And if it's not even bedside care, it's the research or the epidemiology or some other aspect of infectious diseases that's absolutely fascinating and will keep you on the edge of your seat for the rest of your life. I'm optimistic, but at the same time, I'm a realist recognizing that we have to keep our guard up. We have to stay on the razor's edge in terms of the technologies that we create, we build, and utilize and try and improve our bedside care. I'll go back, make full circle here again, referring back to Albert Camus from the plague. And he said, what's true of all the evils in the world is true of plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves. And I think this is exactly how we respond. Look at the Herculean effort by healthcare workers, by laboratory workers, by researchers that have been made in terms of helping to curb this disease and how much worse this would have been if it had occurred 50 years ago. So I love the fact that you both bring the human dimension to the work you do. I mean, you clearly have the clinical, academic, and scientific pedigree, and your expertise and experience just abounds. And I can't thank you enough for sharing that with us today. So as we close out the discussion today, what is it that you want the audience to remember from this discussion? So as I mentioned, the times we have lived and the lessons we have learned, keep your trust up with your partners like public health and commercial and other entities. Keep all those lessons alive and apply them into your future war against these pathogens because we're going to constantly see this war. It's been there for more than 100 years <laughs> with newer pathogens will keep coming. We shouldn't as Dr. Jones mentioned, we can let our guards lower, but use the lessons learned from this pandemic. And I feel confident about that. Lessons learned. Great point. Dr. Jones, take us home. Yeah, I think every time we encounter something like this, there are lessons to be learned. And our key is to learn them, truly learn them and to be able to apply them. They may not always be the same lesson, hopefully, and hopefully we'll remember the ones we did learn and how to apply them appropriately. And again, as Dr. Kapoor said, this is one effort, communication, collaboration, even working closely with our competitors in the laboratory market space, working with the government, working with local governments, and working with physicians. I can tell you one of the things that we sort of engender in our laboratory personnel is that everything they handle it has to do with patient care. Nothing supersedes that, and that what they turn out as a result is critical to patient care and how a physician treats a patient or how a patient ends up being treated and cared for. So again, it's full circle, it's communication, it's laboratory work, working with clinicians, as well as just the communication between all entities as far as from the top to the bottom. Again, it's just important to do the work that needs to be done, and do it together. Dr. Kapoor, Dr. Jones, I can't thank you enough 
And I know our colleagues in the medical scientific community appreciate the work you and all your colleagues do across the country and across the globe. This is a fascinating discussion. You all have done great work here. And I hope the audience you know, has enjoyed this as much as I have. I'd like to thank you all again, thank the audience, and let everybody know that if you've enjoyed the show and the podcast and you'd like to subscribe, just look us up at Diagnostic Dialogues presented by Quest Diagnostics. I'm your host, Dr. Pat Alagia, and thanks again for listening.